Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. Unfortunately, Joshua couldn't be with us today, but my name is Grayson and this is episode number 37, Gender and Disaster, Understanding the Link and Why It's Important. On this episode, we'll be speaking with Alex Valoroso, a Canadian gender specialist, and we'll be looking into the intersectional nature of human identity from a gender lens. We'll explore the many, many links that this field has to disaster vulnerability, impacts, and also to preparedness initiatives and community resilience. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. Now, it's my opinion that one of the most important things that you can do in disaster management is understand your community, whoever that may be. Unfortunately, it's also probably the most difficult thing to do as it involves the ability to see the world through another person's eyes. You know, we try this all the time through hazard and vulnerability assessments, through community profiles, and through stakeholder engagement, but all too often, we end up with overgeneralized plans for this fantastical, non-existent, ideal citizen. In the meantime, the most vulnerable in our communities are often left to fend for themselves. It really is such an important topic and the primary role of disaster preparedness to account for these social inequities that turn into disaster vulnerabilities. Now, one important approach to this problem is found in the study of gender and disaster. And recently, I was lucky enough to catch up with a a former classmate of mine, actually, Alex Valoroso, who happens to be a specialist in the field. So please listen carefully to this interview and see if you can pick out some of your own policies and practices that could perhaps be a bit more equitable. So my name is Alex Valoroso. Uh, Before I begin, I'd just like to acknowledge that I live and work on the traditional territory of the Lataco Dene. Um, I'm currently working as a senior advisor with Emergency Management BC, and I'm a gender equity advisor under the Gender Equity Office with the Ministry of Finance. I'm soon to be a graduate of Gender Pro, which is a specialized technical program at George Washington University, and I hold a master's in disaster emergency management from Royal Roads University. Um, My special focus areas include gender, disaster, community development, uh, specifically recovery, and international development. And some of my previous field experiences include Doctors Without Borders, Canadian Red Cross, and CUSO International. Well, it sounds like we're talking to the right person today because we're here to talk about gender and disaster. So start us off. Why is the study of gender important to understanding disaster? Well, first of all, gender is a cross-cutting theme. So it impacts and touches any and every sector and aspect of our lives. And it's not just gender. So we need to be taking an intersectional approach where we look at the various types of barriers which can oppress or impact people. This is being termed as gender-based analysis plus or GBA plus within federal and provincial government. So applying a gender lens is not a one-size-fits-all approach and the tools we use for a gender-based and intersectional analysis are part of a larger structure. Um, I know there's a desire for a checklist of what to do, but fundamentally the tools we have are conceptual and meant to be adapted to a specific context. So when we think of disasters, they are inherently social phenomenon and that disasters have their foundations in the social system or social structure. And so given that gender is socially constructed and social life is organized around gender relations, there is a gender dimension to any social event. So disasters are a social event. And if we look at the earthquake in Japan and the earthquake in Haiti, there are very different outcomes based on the same type of hazard. 
And although we can say one country had better resources, we need to look at how these were impacted um, or the different factors that impacted that. So, for example, land tenure, food insecurity, history of colonization, access to resources, foreign policy, how society is organized and divided into paid work and unpaid work, and gender is impacted by each of these factors. So we can't really address disasters without looking at who has the decision-making power and who has access to resources, who is at the table, and who is missing. And these are all gendered and intersectional as well. That makes a lot of sense, and it kind of talks to that ancient disaster myth that disasters affect everyone equally. What are some examples of uh, the way that gender interacts with disaster, maybe in the Canadian context? Well, since gender is cross-cutting, the impacts exist whether or not we're aware of it. So Elaine Anderson, um, which is the person that I pull a lot of my research from, and that social phenomenon quote is attributed to her, was one of the first scholars to look at gender during the Red River floods in Manitoba in 1997. Um, I have to say that there's still limited research on Canadian disasters and especially addressing gender. There are a few articles which look at the internal impacts from an organizational standpoint, such as women working in a traditionally male-dominated field, but I haven't seen much content on the disproportionate impacts of disasters on gender. So we don't have the academic research content. We have qualitative data from working in group lodging or from women's shelters who witness the aftermath of domestic violence during and after an event and from after action reports, which touch on social vulnerabilities, but maybe don't identify these issues as gendered. Uh, some examples in terms of what this could look like. Well, we know that women tend to be responsible for looking after children and elders, which is often unpaid care work. And this can create an unfair burden to women who may already have limited resources and then need to decide on whether they can take time off of work to deal with a disaster or relocate afterwards, or even the amount of work to rebuild once the event is over. There's also an increase in gender-based violence during and after disasters for women and girls. Men and women are also impacted as gender roles dictate specific roles which can impact mental health and coping mechanisms. So for example, Men may feel they have to be stoic and on the front lines and are unable to discuss their emotions or fears, leading to unhealthy coping mechanisms such as substance abuse and acts of violence. And then we need to think of like when we look at our reception centers, are they fully accessible? Are we using school buses and schools for evacuees who may have experienced the trauma of residential school? Are these spaces safe for members of the LGBT community? And are these just addressing the practical needs and disasters? So, for example, we look, you know, practical needs are looking at the basic needs like food, shelter, clothing. We would ideally look at how to move beyond the practical needs to look at strategic needs, which look at who's in the decision making role and who has access to resources, ensuring that this is equitable. So there's, lo there's a lot to unpack there. No kidding. Can you speak a little bit more to uh, some of the impacts of disaster as it as it goes to gender, you, you talked a little bit about uh, increased incidence of domestic abuse and some of the other uh, sort of underlying vulnerabilities there. Yeah, certainly. So, you know, we don't want to generalize, but in society, we in Canadian society, and again, it's specific to the local context, uh, we do see that women are traditionally more responsible for looking after the family, the home. Uh, so when a flood is approaching, it's usually left to the, the women in the home to prepare the home and get it ready for the flood while the men are on the front lines. And then afterwards, it's often women in the community that sort of 
build back the community and bring that fabric back to life. And so that's another sort of secondary third layer of work that's often already attributed to women. Uh, you know, they have their regular work hours, they have the family work, and then there's the community work plus the emotional labor. So those are factors that are maybe not really flushed out when we look at different programs and policies. And um, we need to consider the different intersections around uh, for example, if you are an Indigenous woman living in a community, you not only are you a woman, you're also Indigenous. And so what are potential barriers that could impact you? And we have to look at the legacy of colonization within Canada and within the different provinces and territories and what that might look like and how that impacts um, women. We know that there are disproportionate impacts of disasters on Indigenous women and girls. And so that could lead to additional potential substance abuse, additional violence against women and girls, lack of resources. And I think there's often a heavy demand placed on women to do that social and emotional work, especially during disasters, that places a further burden on them. And so we need to think of how to unleash that burden, but ensure that women are still in leadership positions so that their needs are being addressed. And that brings up a really interesting point, because you hear uh, gender and disaster studies, and you immediately think uh, women and vulnerabilities, but that's not really all it's about. What are some of the uh, capacities that can be leveraged and some of the other uh, kind of broader gender um, strengths that, that might be identified in this sort of research? And I think that's really good. I think when we hear gender, we automatically think it's, it's you know, just means women and men have gender as well. And so when we look at this, we really should be talking about men, women, boys, girls, and gender diverse peoples. And I think some of the really amazing work that's being done in community isn't always acknowledged. Um, we have to look at social networks and social capacity when looking at resiliency and looking at recovery. Um, again, I think there is a gendered component to that. Women do tend to be a bit more involved in the community, a bit more social. They seem to know the neighbors or where to go um, for particular resources. And men can feel more isolated. Um, again, don't want to generalize too much, but that is kind of what we're seeing. And so in terms of recovery or receiving supports, women are better placed um, to uh, receive the supports that they may need, whereas men may may not because they don't have those connections and may feel that they are not able to discuss their emotions or ask for particular resources um, just based on the varying different gender roles. So it's really important to look at social capacity, um, social networks that exist within a community. And that's why a one-size-all approach doesn't really work when we're looking at gender and disaster. It's really context-specific. And we need to build on the knowledge that already exists in community. And so leveraging that and having those population groups, um, those different associations participate within your planning and within um, sort of that knowledge gathering is really important. So then you're not going to miss the, the needs that are that exist out there. So as you said, this is a hugely complex cross-cutting field. How should emergency managers go about incorporating this into their practice? You know, how should this be discussed and how should we start to view this in that emergency management professional context? Well, first, I would recommend that everyone take uh, the free online GBA Plus course through the Status of Women website. I think now it's also known as Women and Gender Equity or WAGE. Um, if you Google GBA Plus, it'll come up. 
Uh, we should be taking an intersectional approach to disasters. So this goes beyond gender and looks again at barriers which may impact a group or individual. Um, one example is looking at the disproportionate impacts of disasters on Indigenous women and girls, which I had mentioned before. There is a gendered component, but the intersection is the Indigenous identity and the barriers which may exist due to systemic, structural or institutional racism. As emergency managers, if we can acknowledge that not all communities or people start at the same vantage point, then we can begin to build more equitable programs. But we need to be aware of the local context. And so I appreciate when emergency managers say that they just treat everybody equally, but actually that does more harm than good because we're not acknowledging that um, it's not an equitable approach. And I think a good way to begin these discussions is to take an honest look at the programs you have in place and see if they are reflective of the population in your local community and to see who is part of the planning and who is missing, because it is those missing voices we need to hear from. Um, there are ways to assess your programs and integrate gender. There should also be a commitment to do a gender analysis at the start of any program or project to limit the harm which may be caused. And a more formal approach to gender disaster would require a full gender-based analysis. And there are consultants and resources available to support with that work if you don't currently have somebody um, in your agency organization that can do it. Can you speak a little bit more about that gender analysis? You know, what does it look like? When should you incorporate it? And what sort of benefits or tweaks would it end up giving to your program or project? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> it should ideally be done at the very beginning of any sort of project or policy or program proposal. Uh, and really what um, we should be doing is assessing where that that particular project sits on. It's called a gender marker. And so is it is it perpetuating stereotypes? Is it causing harm? Is it including both men, women, boys and girls? And so based on a bit of an analysis, you give your project or program or whatever a specific grade. And let's say if you're at a grade one or two, the end goal is to make it gender transformative, where we're really addressing the root causes of inequality. And so then you would have to do a bit of an analysis to say, well, how do I even move it from like a step two to a step three or four to a five? So you can do that with a project before you start or a project that's already in play, and then trying to see how you can tweak that. The next part would actually be applying a, um, a gender analysis framework. And there's a number of frameworks that exist that you can utilize. And this does take some time. Like this is not just a checklist that you quickly go through and say, okay, we're done. You really have to start to gather the knowledge in the area and ask some, some big questions and, and guiding questions around the objective of whatever your project or policy or program is about. Um, so that requires a bit of data collection, probably a desk review and a bit more input from different um, associations that are within your community. Then you would want to uh, look at a theory of change. So really identifying what is the problem and then what is the core solution. And that'll provide um, some of your key indicators and key activities on how to shift your program or policy from something that maybe is potentially gender harmful or gender neutral to at least gender sensitive, gender responsive, or gender transformative. And then the best would be to also incorporate a monitoring and evaluation component. Um, I think that's a bit tricky. We often see or hear of training that goes into <laughs> the outer region and, and we don't really know what the outcome of that is and if it's really serving a purpose. 
So it's a, that's a really fulsome approach to doing a gender analysis around a policy or program or project. And I know here in BC, the Gender Equity Office is providing a bit of a guidebook around questions to ask and considerations around different projects that you're looking at implementing. So there'll be some support around that way, but that really fulsome approach does take time. Are there any examples that you can think of where this uh, gender-based analysis has made a big difference in the way that a project or program was delivered? Internationally, there's a number of examples. I mean, one example that's quite popular that people like to share is how I believe it's a township in Sweden took a GBA plus approach to snow removal and how they realized by doing a bit of a gender analysis and changing the way that they did the snow removal, it actually served the population better and resulted in less injury and less constraints on families who would walk to work or walk to school versus drivers. And previously, that's what I mean, like gender is cross-cutting. I don't think anybody would have thought of gender and snow removal as kind of fitting in the same sentence. But at the end of the day, it didn't cost more money to do to kind of switch up the process around it, but it served the needs of that population much better. Interesting. So if we take this back to the emergency management context, what sort of improvements uh, need to be made? I think one big piece is access to research. Uh, Depending on where you're working, um, you may or may not have access to academic research. And not that that's the only piece of research we want to be looking at. But that's, I feel, is a piece that we're missing that we don't have access to. And even for myself, when I'm looking for Canadian examples, I'm not able to find any. And I'm not sure if it's an issue of that the research hasn't really been, been done in a Canadian context, or I just don't have access to that research. Um, another piece is that we need to buy into GBA Plus and make the training mandatory, which I believe all provinces and territories have now been mandated to include GBA Plus and cabinet and treasury board submissions. So I think that that's already on the way. I think all organizations and municipalities should conduct a gender audit to fully understand their resources and gaps and create a bit of a baseline. The information gathered from a gender audit could then be used to build a specific gender action plan and support the type of training activities relevant to that specific municipality or region. Then it would be evidence-based and it would be easier to track through monitoring and evaluation and really look at which activities or which training or what the next steps would need to to occur and what's been working. I would love to hear if there are any municipalities that have done a gender audit and what their and the feedback and what the process has been like. Uh, we would also need to move beyond the traditional technical approach of emergency management, whereby the knowledge and skills come from a very masculine sector such as fire, forestry, military, and they're often gender blind in their approach. So they don't they don't kind of acknowledge even that gender exists. So we need to take more of an intersectional lens to our work and then look at these deep layers which go beyond the immediate impact of a disaster. And that's almost an entire different question is, uh, you know, gender in the profession of emergency management, not just the way that disasters impact gender differences. Yeah, yeah. So there is, you know, there's external around just the impacts of gender and um, and disaster and what does that look like for for impacted populations. And then internally within an organization, um, looking at the roles that women and men take um, within emergency management, within fire, wildfire, forestry, uh, any sort of those response agencies that would contribute to emergency management. And I think 
you know, based on my own research for my thesis, the comment was that, well, gender's been done and we don't need to really deal with it. But we see from both internal and external that that's not the case and that we, um, rather than taking sort of this gender blind or gender neutral approach, we really need to flush it out and analyze it further and make sure that we are doing our work in a good way. So it sounds like there's some internal and external work that needs to be done within the context of Canadian emergency management. You mentioned several different resources. I'm wondering if you could just kind of summarize where uh, emergency managers might be able to go to find out more and start some of their transformative changes in their organizations. Yeah, definitely. So for one, um, definitely take a look at the Status of Women website for the GBA Plus training and take the training um build GBA plus into your budget we know that if there isn't a budget it's not going to happen and so that takes some discussion around resourcing and what could this look like um looking for the gender champion in your organization is there someone that can support the work that you're doing and if not potentially advocating that there needs to be somebody who can help do this work I would say also that emergency managers can connect and partner with associations, which represent groups that have been neglected in the past. So Indigenous associations or friendship centers, uh, senior groups, elder groups, LGBTQ, women's groups, immigrant and refugee populations, and so on. Um, there's You can definitely do some self-guided learning on gender or Indigenous history in your province or territory, because I think that's also an important piece that tends to be missing. There's a wealth of resources. Most of them tend to be geared towards international disasters or some of the larger disasters such as Katrina in the U.S. Unfortunately, not a lot in the Canadian context, but we can definitely draw parallels in terms of countries that are similar to Canada in terms of like resources, uh, GDP, population, um, even if we think of New Zealand, um, some of the uh, Australia those are good examples where we can make some parallels around what's going on. But again, it should be really rooted in the local knowledge and context of a community or space to be effective. Alex, thank you so much for joining us for this epic podcast. And thank you so much for all the work that you do. Uh, thanks so much, Grayson. It was a pleasure. And I'm always happy to talk about this and share resources. And if any of your listeners would like to reach out and connect, they're more than welcome to. So a huge thanks again to Alex Valoroso. Really great to have her on the show. And identifying that key link between disasters and gender, you know, disasters are that social phenomenon and gender is a socially constructed element that's always at play and is always impacted disaster. But more than that, it should impact the way that we prepare. And that's what the Journal Club article for today is all about. I'm going to be reviewing a publication entitled Gender Mainstreaming in Emergency Management, Opportunities for Building Community Resilience in Canada. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the term gender mainstreaming, it's basically what we've been talking about this episode. It's a strategy to assess uh, implications for any planned initiatives from a gendered and intersectional lens in the pursuit of fairness and equity. Now, this particular uh, article, and we'll put a link to it in the, the show notes here, was prepared for the Public Health Agency of Canada's Centre for Emergency Preparedness and Response. And it's primarily done by Elaine Anderson and Margaret uh, Haworth Brockman, who are both heavy hitters in the field of gender and disaster. Now, this really is a foundational article. You know, I say this a lot, but this truly is a must-read article for anyone 
who considers themselves an emergency manager. And it really helps me to understand the connection between gender and disaster, not just in terms of impacts, but also in terms of understanding community resilience and the workplace culture of emergency management and those peripheral organizations that are traditionally uh, pretty male-centric. What I liked about this article is that it brings home all of these concepts by examining Canadian case studies, such as the Red River Flood or SARS, and it examines the policy and practice gaps that do exist in Canadian emergency management. It's a little bit dated back from 2008, but there were some really powerful quotes, one of which uh, was from a nurse responding to the 2003 SARS outbreak, so it's pretty relevant right now, and it goes a little bit like this. The masks were so large as they were designed for men. Most of the equipment was designed for males. We had real issues around equipment fitting and the lack of equipment. That's the healthcare industry, and they're still having, in 2003, still having problems uh, with a gendered approach to even the production of, of PPE. So, uh, really powerful quote there. The other thing that I found really useful in this article were the six principles for engendered relief and reconstruction. And these principles kind of span the field and also touch on the, uh, the tool of the trade for today. So, these six principles in brief are, number one, think big. Gender inequality uh, as a risk reduction principle has to guide all aspects of disaster mitigation response recovery. You know, this is that intersectional field and it touches everything. Number two, get the facts. You know, gender analysis is not optional or divisive, but it's imperative to direct aid and plan uh, for full and equitable recovery and make sure that your, your efforts are uh, being as effective as possible. Nothing in disaster work is, is gender neutral, and that term can in fact be quite uh, harmful because if you're neutral, you take the side of the enemy and you might end up reinforcing some, uh, some, some gender inequities. Number three, work with grassroots women's organizations. So community organizations, as we all know, are vital to building resilience and enhancing community capacity. So it's all about finding the organizations that exist in your community. And as an added bonus, this publication has a, a fairly comprehensive list of all of these uh, organizations that existed at 2008 at least. So it's a little dated, but it would be a good starting point if you're trying to expand your stakeholder group. Principle number four is resist stereotypes. You have to base all your initiatives on knowledge uh, and understanding the differences and not reinforce those false generalities. Principle number five is take a human rights approach. Now, this might seem straightforward, but it, it really requires an understanding of, that girls and women are at an increased risk of certain things in disaster and that their right to succeed and thrive is really not being met under current conditions. Uh, number six, respect and develop the capacities of women. Uh, avoid overburdening women who already have heavy workloads and family responsibilities that are likely to increase during disasters. So identifying the social tasks or social burdens that are often taken on and then targeting your initiatives at that. So I really quite like this approach and it goes into a lot more detail in, in the article, uh, but it leads very nicely into our tool of the trade, which is the GBA plus course or the GBA plus uh, website. Now this is a course that was designed by the Canadian government. Uh, it stands for gender-based analysis plus. So just plug that into Google and you'll find it. It's a free course. It took me about two hours to complete and it goes over this analytical process that's used to assess how diverse groups of women, men, and non-binary people may experience policies, programs, and initiatives. So basically how people experiencing experience the same thing differently. Uh, 
and it can either be viewed as a process or as a competency. So there is some procedural stuff in here. Uh, it walks you through the different steps to a gender-based analysis, but more than that, it builds the competency to kind of expand your worldview and look at things in a little bit more of an equitable lens. Now, as I went through it, I noticed that it's not entirely dissimilar to a health equity analysis. So if you work in the health field or if you're familiar with that lens, I think it would be very complimentary to take this course. And it really is all about understanding the difference between equality and equity and making that move towards equity. So some of the concepts that it covers in depth are the concept of intersectionality, which hopefully you have a better understanding of at the end of this podcast. But that's the, uh, you know, identifying factors that interplay to help build your identity. So whether that's, you know, gender, race, ethnicity, religion, age, uh, education, sexual orientation, whatever it is, all of those factors coming together uh, to form an identity. And I like that approach, that factors approach, uh, better than the vulnerable populations or that identifying or in labeling individual communities, because that's never really worked for me in a hazard vulnerability risk assessment. There is no such thing as a vulnerable community because uh, there's just so many things that make up those individuals within the community. So the, the factors approach, I think, helps you identifying some of the, the vulnerabilities as they apply to different factors in everybody's lives and find the strengths that it's attached to those factors as well. And then the meat of the course is, of course, the actual how to go through a GBA plus and attach it to a program or initiative. But one of the things that I like the most about this course is how Canadian it truly is. Every example, every real life example is a past Canadian in initiative that has been made better by applying the GBA plus. Uh, they have examples ranging from developing a sporting initiative or a forestry recruitment initiative all the way to developing climate action programs and then an entire video specifically to do with emergency preparedness initiatives. So it's very applicable to emergency preparedness and I think a, uh, a really great tool for any of your programs as you try to engage with your community and promote preparedness. So that's GBA plus and uh, at the end you even get a little certificate. Well, that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. Again, a big thanks to Alec Valoroso for sharing her time and expertise with us on the topic of gender and disaster. Just before I go, I do want to thank our sponsors. Uh, this episode was sponsored in part by Park Power. Park Power is owned by Chris Kozowski, who has a growing and well-deserved reputation for being a guy who cares. He walks that talk with his business, and it's why Park Power shares 10% of its profits with local charities. Current community partners include Boys and Girls Clubs of Strathcona County, the Altview Foundation for Gender Variant and Sexual Minorities, the Festive Place Cultural Arts Foundation, Muscular Dystrophy Canada, and the Canada Parks and Wilderness Society. Learn more at parkpower.ca. This episode is also brought to you in part by ATB Financial. Uh, one of the cool things that ATB has done is they've partnered with Boyle Street Community Services to create Four Directions Financial. This is a place where people living in poverty or on the street can have a safe, secure place to do basic banking. Since identification is often a challenge for the homeless, they allow clients to be identified through fingerprint or even eye scan. To find out more, visit atb.com Brian. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ETV. 
As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at the username epic underscore underscore podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.